I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. Today is June 22nd, which is kind of a big day in the faith and politics world. It's the feast day of St. Thomas More, the great English Catholic saint who was executed uh, as really kind of a, a martyr for conscience, a martyr for religious freedom, uh, actually executed on July 6th, a couple, a couple weeks from today. But, um, but he shares a feast day with uh, St. John Fisher, who is a great English Catholic bishop who was actually executed today. Uh, they were killed in the year 1535, so almost 500 years ago. So yeah, like I said, great, great feast day. Um, thinking back, we've been doing this program for a little while now. I think we're up to 60 some episodes. If you go back, you know, one of my favorite episodes ever is go back and look in the archives, episode 16. I'm, I have a great conversation with the Thomas More I got to just got to say it. He's like the nerd of all Thomas More nerds. Professor Gerard Wegemar teaches at the University of Dallas. And I've got a number of books on my shelf. I'm looking at one right now, Thomas More on Statesmanship. I just had a wonderful time visiting with uh, Professor Wegemar last year on Thomas More. And if you go back and listen last week, episode 62, I had on a young attorney, uh, Nicholas Michaels, who has just founded a St. Thomas More Society for South Dakota. They hosted a, a really nice uh, convivium last week, which is Latin for happy hour, uh, uh, in concurrence with the state bar convention. So lawyers from all over the state, Catholic lawyers had just a, a great, great time. So kind of continuing this theme of, of uh, Thomas More, faith and politics, religious freedom, uh, I think some of our listeners will know that there was a really big Supreme Court decision that was uh, released very, very recently. It was, let's see, was it last, was it last Thursday? Yeah, I decided June 17th was, was when it was published. Um, they, the, the court puts out its, its decisions uh, every Thursday, and um, we're coming up to the end of its decisions now for the October term. So this would have been cases argued last October. In uh, the, the case is known as Fulton v. the City of Philadelphia, a big religious freedom case. We're going to talk a little bit about that case, but we're going to kind of build up to it, too. I've got a, uh, a great guest on today, Christopher Dotson, who's the executive director of the North Dakota Catholic Conference, um, uh, been a longstanding Catholic Conference director and an attorney. We're going to kind of talk through some of the, um, the history of, of some of the religious freedom, religious liberty standards that we've had in law. Christopher, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy um, St. Thomas More Feast Day. Yeah. Happy Feast Day. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, what a- when I became Catholic, I took Thomas as my middle name uh, for Thomas More. Ah, wonderful. And what, how long have you been Catholic now, Christopher? Uh, 1989. Ah, uh, wonderful. And you were, we were visiting just a little bit before we started recording. You became... 88, maybe. You, were you in law school then? I was in law school in my third year of law school. Um, I spent more time studying probably theology than law when I started law school. Something just uh, moved me. And I knew I went to law school because I knew I wanted to be involved in public policy and politics. Mm. Um, What I didn't know is that God had other plans for me. And uh, I became a Catholic in law school. That's awesome. And then I didn't feel at home in any political party. Um, uh, but I knew that calling for public service, and that's it wasn't the lawyer part of Thomas More. It was that public service call um, that spoke to me, and that's why I took his name 
um, just took a new middle name. That's awesome. After Thomas More. I love it. You know, I, um, myself too, uh, one of the great parts of my own law school experience, my first year of law school, a priest was very influential. He, in my life, he gave me the advice of, yeah, you, you need to actually shape your own education, read things that are interesting and that like, um, that delight your, your soul that you're attracted to. And so I began reading a lot of, uh, some of the old English Catholics, Chesterton and Belloc and, um, and then had the great fortune as I think it was in my last year, I was studying at St. Thomas and, uh, I've said this before. It was really impactful uh, for me. I took an upper level. They have a great Catholic studies department at St. Thomas in the twin cities. And I took a graduate level course on Thomas More taught by Dr. Uh, John Boyle. Phenomenal. I just, I felt like I really received St. Thomas More as a friend uh, in that class. One of the best classes I took in law school. It wasn't even at the law school, uh, properly speaking. So happy feast day. So, okay. Um, Beginning as all things should at the beginning, I wanted to just, before we kind of get into some of the legal standards, I wanted to just read the First Amendment to the Constitution, because where does this all start with? Of course, we've got this um, religious freedom is a right that exists within in nature. It doesn't, you know, it's recognized in law, thank God. But here's what First Amendment to the Constitution says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the sentence goes on, but that's, that's all there is uh, pertaining to religion. It's kind of short, like, golly, what does that mean? And you've been practicing law for uh, over 30, 30 years now. Where do, where do we begin in, I don't know, um, kind of trying to understand the modern history of the judicial understanding of, of the free exercise clause particularly? What was the standard when you were kind of uh, cutting your teeth in the law? Let's, let's go back um, before me. Uh, and I think a lot of people forget this, is that the First Amendment didn't apply to the states. You know, it says mm-hmm. Congress shall make no law. Um, and it really wasn't until um, the 1960s that we began seeing, uh, through the 14th Amendment, um, the rights in the Bill of Rights begin to apply to the states. Um, so states had their own religious freedom um, clauses in their constitution. Sometimes they had establishment clauses in their constitution, especially in the um, colonial states. So it wasn't until the 1960s that we began to see the um, application of First Amendment rights and other amendment rights uh, to the states. And that's when the notion that the First Amendment religious freedom clause applied to the states. Uh, and there were a couple cases, um, particularly um, Sherbert versus Verner, and then um, Yoder versus Wisconsin. Mm. Um, Yoder was uh, a um, dealing with Amish schooling. Um, that the uh, Supreme Court, and this is what we usually call the Warren Court and the early Burger Court. This was uh, what some people call the liberal court, because they were all Republicans mostly, and. Um, um, Chief Justice Warren went to the same law school I did in Berkeley and was the former governor of California. And uh, they said, basically, basically, you could look at it like this, that the First Amendment uh, presumptively protects religious freedom. 
um, when I went to law school, they said we called this strict scrutiny, basically, you know, yeah. that it's the highest standard of protection you can have. And what it means is that government almost always loses. The individual almost always wins yeah. because there's a presumption uh, that your rights are protected. And in this case, in religion, the state has to have a compelling government interest, a legitimate compelling government interest to infringe upon that liberty. And they have to do it in the most narrowly tailored way possible. Uh, that's a high burden to me. That's why it's called strict scrutiny. Um, and that was the standard from about the 1960s up to uh, 1990s. Yeah, and that's uh, sometimes we don't always think of that too. We, especially here in the, the, the fertile cultural soil of the Midwest, there's kind of this um, the spirit of tolerance. And yeah, of course you, you can follow your faith, but actually it, it, it's not necessarily um, that clear cut, but for you to put it in those terms of like the individual all, almost always wins where, okay, I can, if it's, if my action that I desire to do is really based on my faith, it's a very, very high standard for the, for the government to then show like, well, actually there's a very, very clear, very, very compelling, it's what, what we call a compelling state interest that the government has to prove. Um, and they've got to, uh, it's a, there's a very heavy burden that's that's on that. Well, yeah, it's a burden on on the state. On and, the state, um, um, and it's similar to free speech and um, um, other basic basic rights in the Constitution, um, association, and so on. Um, but um, it really was during this time after World War II, mostly in the '60s, though that. Um, this application to the states um, of these amendments became sort of ingrained um, one after another. They all were decided to apply to the states. And it was important for the civil rights movement. It was important for the Vietnam yes. uh, rights movement, uh, the student movements, the um, anti-war movements of the time. Uh, but it was also important for religious minorities, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, Amish, um, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, these were the ones who really pushed these cases um, and the conscientious objectors. There was a, there was a parallel, I, I think, with the conscientious objectors to war um, and the um, sort of the conscientious objectors of our time with Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. uh, the religious minorities. And um, the pattern became that the strict scrutiny standard applied, this higher standard for religious freedom. So that, that kind of brings us up um, through, I don't know, the, the 60s, the 70s. What's the next development in this area of, of case law? Well, I think it really happened with 1990, Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, that just changed everything, flipped it on its head. Um, what Justice Scalia wrote is the strict scrutiny standards shouldn't apply. If a law applies to everybody and there's no exceptions and it's not specifically targeted toward religion, um, 
the other the other end of the spectrum applies rational basis and it, i was always told in, in law school rational basis standard if the government can come up with basically any reason for doing it government wins it's the opposite government almost always wins yeah and in this case it was um let's see if i remember the facts get some native americans who used peyote um had lost their jobs and were seeking unemployment benefits right. and the question is they were denied and they used peyote for religious purposes and scalia said look the rule applies to everybody yeah um and there, there shouldn't be an ex there's no exceptions it applies to everybody it's not targeting religion right and so rational basis basically applies and and just uh to take a quick step back and give the brief overview for the listeners of there are these kind of varying levels when we're using terms like strict scrutiny rational basis kind of one that's in the middle between the two intermediate scrutiny it's it's when we find um rights if you will that are in tension with one another how does the court sort through those conflicting rights and duties. So we talk about strict scrutiny using Smith as the, this, um, this 1990 case out of Oregon as a concrete example. Well, the, the state's got a general obligation to, to protect the health and welfare of citizens. One of the ways in which it does that is to, is to regulate or prohibit uh, controlled substances, drugs, you know, drugs, they, they, they harm people. The drug trade harms people. It makes a lot of sense that the government would would um, regulate criminal activity like the drug trade, using drugs. How do we sort through that when that comes into conflict with with a religious believer, um, you know, a, a Native American who says actually very longstanding, sincerely held religious belief that actually this is part of a religious ritual is the smoking of um, peyote, which is uh, an unlawful substance in, in this context. How does the court sort through that? Well, first question is like, um, is is there a really, really, I mean, before the Smith standard, is there a really compelling interest that the government has? Um, and Scalia is kind of, he dismisses that actually and says, well, no, there's this new idea of like, it's just a generally applicable law the government doesn't have to like meet this really high burden if it's just a general law that applies to everybody. What, what's the what's the problem with this, Christopher? Because I think on like first glance, this makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, you shouldn't be able to do drugs, and it doesn't, you know, really matter what your religion well, is. I think, Isn't that well, the, the the problem that a number of us saw with the decision in Smith is it got rid of that compelling interest standard. So let's yeah. say drugs that you could say prohibition of drugs, criminalization of um, mind altering substance, the government has a legitimate compelling interest there. Um, but if you get rid of that standard, they could pass a law without a compelling interest. Mm -hmm. um, um, or a rather low interest, sure. you know, something. And without the narrowly tailored uh, application, um, they can pass a law or government, they can pass a law or a policy, um, that there are alternatives to. Right. So for, for example, um, the, um, there, the, there may be a law that says that you have to have 
on your vehicle, uh, on your buggy, um, a yellow sign that reflect is a reflection of the yellow triangle that has a reflection and it's a certain type of color. Um, and if you have a religious objection to having that on your buggy, but you can do something else, which uh, may be a silver sign, you know, um, there's an alternative there that um, accomplishes the same thing that the law intends to accomplish. Yeah. Um, a policy that says there's no, uh, on a school, a public school basketball court, you um, cannot wear um, any head coverings. Yeah. For example, because they might fall off. So there's no yarmulkes allowed um, for the Jewish student. On the other hand, those can be pinned down with um, bobby pins. Sure. And there may be legitimate interest in safety, but if it's not narrowly tailored, um, if there's no narrowly tailored requirement, there's no alternative there. I mean, it's just as safe to have it pinned on your head with the um, bobby pin, but it wouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Um, we've seen that with rosaries in schools, for example, sure. with students having rosaries. Um, um, so, so the problem with the Smith decision is it got rid of the compelling interest standard and the narrowly tailored thing. It's not saying the state doesn't have a legitimate interest. Remember, yeah. there are times that government can win. Um, so, so the response again in the 1990s, let's put it in context here. The justices that had the Yoder decision and set that standard up were by most standards today, more liberal justices, moderate justices. Yeah. Then came Scalia, conservative justice. Um, and some people, and Scalia kind of hinted about this in his decision is that if we, if we keep with this standard, all kinds of crazies are going to get through the door, right? Crazy religions. And, and that's, not what he said. That's not what the first amendment is about. It has to be some kind of limit. Um, but the political interest was more on the, uh, protection, protecting, um, the religious minorities such as native Americans. Yeah. Uh, and so a, a coalition developed, um, with people that were Christians and people more in the moderate and people concerned about native Americans and other religious minority groups yeah. um, in response to the Smith decision. And that's, I think you're going to lead up to there's led to the religious freedom restoration act. Yeah. Which I don't know if many people, and we've covered it on the show before, but it's, it's a really important act. It's worth talking about again, the religious freedom restoration act passed in, I, I want to say 1993 or was it 92, but overwhelming, virtually unanimous support in both chambers of mm -hmm. Congress. I don't know if there was a single vote against in the House. There was maybe, I don't know, two, three votes against in the yeah, Senate. It was, it was overwhelming. But, you know, signed by President Bill Clinton, the sponsors were then representative uh, Charles Schumer, Democrat from New York, and mm -hmm. Senator Ted Kennedy, a Democrat from Massachusetts. Um, overwhelming support, bipartisan support, huge support among the American people. And one of the things that 
uh, Scalia had said in his Smith decision was, well, your remedy is really with the legislature. They can establish strict scrutiny in law. That's what that's what RIFRA did, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, so very quickly, within a couple of years, we're kind of back to the same legal standard, but it's established in statute. Um, one of the things that followed, and I'm blanking on the name of the case, maybe you have it at, uh, offhand, is uh, I want to say it was 97. There was a case, Supreme Court case, where they dis- um, they decided that RIFRA was, did not apply to the states. It only applied... Um, as to federal government action, um, which kind of left the states hanging. And then we've seen a movement among the states to kind of um, enact their own state RIFRAs. Uh, we enacted uh, one here in South Dakota this this year, praise God, goes into effect here July 1st in about a week. And, um, and, and then some states have their own establishment clauses in state constitutions um, and their courts have applied was established, but they've, they've applied strict scrutiny kind of to state law. Um, but we've, we kind of, we've come to this really tenuous spot. It feels like, I don't know if you remember the masterpiece case from a couple of years ago, masterpiece cake shop out of Colorado. There was another real conflict between, um, uh, a religious free exercise, religious freedom and a state law, that said that you got to serve every, you got to serve everybody. This, in this case, it was Jack Phillips, a cake baker. He said, well, I don't, you know, I, I'm happy that you can buy any cookies you want out of my, out of my bakery case, but I'm not going to apply my, my artistic abilities to create a message that I don't believe in that namely that same sex marriage is marriage. He said, I just, I can't do that. You know, buy whatever generic cupcakes you want, but I won't create that message. The, the court found for him, but it did so on really narrow grounds. Mm. Um, essentially, they said because the state of Colorado clearly had a religious animus, there was very clear they had an animus against him. So it violated essentially this neutral. They weren't neutrally applying their law. They were going after him. So kind of narrow grounds. Um, we've got, if you're just joining us uh, here on Faith and Politics, Chris Motes, director of the South Dakota Catholic Conference, visiting with uh, Christopher Dodson, director of the North Dakota Catholic Conference. We've got five or six minutes left here. Um, Christopher's kind of just walked us through a bit of the development of the free exercise, religious freedom, jurisprudence, uh, coming up through the enactment of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the early 90s. And just brings us to this big case that I want to just touch on a little bit in our, our last couple minutes here. Fulton Beach City of Philadelphia. We had um, a number of just great South Dakota legislators sign on to an amicus brief in that case when it was being decided, being heard last year. Um, we here in South Dakota in 2017, so prior to the creation of the Catholic Conference here in South Dakota, our legislature adopted a, um, a law that protects faith-based adoption providers, which is essentially what's at stake in Fulton B. City of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia, um, longstanding a relationship with Catholic Social Services there, um, Catholic Social Services was placing between two and 300 kids in foster homes every year. Um, well, the city decided that it disagreed with Catholic Social Services' commitment to not place kids in same-sex households. Just not going to do it. Not consistent with the faith. 
Um, there are plenty of kids in need out there and plenty of families that they were serving. The client in the case, who was actually the, the, the plaintiff, her name was Sharon L. Fulton. Um, she'd been fostering kids for years, for decades. Um, and so it was really uh, denied the opportunity to serve uh, needy kids when the city canceled its relationship with Catholic Social Services. Now, it, it, just in the brief overview of this case, and we should probably spend more time, it's you know over a hundred page decision, we should spend more time in the future unpacking some of the details. But um, one of the phenomenal things, really remarkable things about the decision is that it's a nine, uh, nine zero judgment. And as you look at, there are a number of concurrences in the, um, in the majority uh, opinion, there is, I want to say that is joined by, where did I lose it? Uh, five, five of the justices. Uh, Roberts delivered the opinion of the court and, and Roberts for court watchers. Roberts, the chief justice has a real eye towards uh, the credibility, legitimacy, uh, the coherence of the court. So it's not surprising that on such a contentious decision, he would want to write the opinion, uh, which is his prerogative when the chief is in the uh, majority. So he was joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and, and Barrett. Uh, in his opinion, Barrett filed a concurrence. So I guess before I briefly move on to that, I should say that this majority, they sidestep Smith is kind of the big takeaway. They said right. that this wasn't a law of general applicability uh, because within the city's um, ordinance, there was an exception specifically written in to the ordinance. The city had flexibility, but it didn't use it. So because the city had the flexibility to grant an exemption, but it didn't, it wasn't a law of general applicability. Um, uh, Barrett was, she wrote a concurrence. She joined in the judgment, but she, she wrote a uh, concurrence that Kavanaugh joined. It was very short, two and a half pages. Um, Breyer joined it uh, also, all but the first paragraph. And the takeaway from this two and a half pages is they, they're agreeing um, with the judgment. They think it's the right result. They take a, just a little look though at Smith and they don't, um, they don't knock legs out from under Smith, but they maybe poke at it a bit. Um, so that it's clear that they don't directly say that Smith needs to go away, but it's clear that, that Smith is on thin ice. Um, they don't know what they would replace it with. They don't know what would, what would be next. Um, they don't need to arrive at that judgment in this case, but um, it's, it's on thin ice. And then the final concurrence, Gorsuch, uh, Thomas, and Alito, um, Alito writes it, and it's just a tour de force of First Amendment, uh, kind of an explanation of the history, the development, so on and so forth, explaining why Smith's long, uh, wrong. We need to go back to a strict scrutiny standard. Um, and then it, uh, it also really unpacks stare decisis and when the court ought to reverse itself. It's done that 200 some times in its history as a, as a high court. They respect precedent, but um, Alito says it's gotta go. Smith's wrong, it's gotta go. Okay, thirty seconds left. How was that, Christopher? Great. Any 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 closing I, thoughts I, on this feast day of Thomas yeah. More? As uh, as I gave the the five minute overview of, of Fulton, and you did it's a really a nice job. Great overview. History. I think the takeaway is it looks as though there's a majority that would overturn Smith under the right conditions, and I think that aligns with our faith more. Amen. Because it's a fundamental right. 
Very good. Well, Christopher, I hope you have a great feast day and thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on Faith and Politics today. Thanks for having me. And thank you as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. Love to hear listener feedback. You can go to sdcatholicconference.org, click contact us. Until next time, live well. Mm-hmm.